Welcome all of you for this historical event which is named as the call with Islamic greetings Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh May peace mercy and blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala almighty God be on all of you Brothers and sisters what do you think this event the call is all about Well the call is an islamic event organized by jamiatul salaf in association with a prominent islamic scholar dr abu amina bilal phillips tonight dr bilal phillips give a talk on a very important subject so hope you will be waiting for that moment this whole event the call is the first of its kind It's a type of Islamic event that is taking place in Moldavian soil for the first time alhamdulillah This is the first episode of the call inshallah the second episode of the call will be held tomorrow night here at 8:45 so hope you be here you'll be present here Brothers and sisters I think it's time for now just to look at tonight's agenda First item was introduction of historical event I did that I performed that Next is a speech by Jamiatul Salaf General Secretary Mohammad Soba about this event After that after the speech by Jamiatul Salaf General Secretary a youngster or a young child would give a speech that's what I would like to say or call for that a speech that is named is our call that's what the young child will be delivering and the and tonight's main item is the talk by dr bilal phillips after that q and a session on tonight's subject that's what we have got on tonight's agenda i would not tell the subject dr bilal should be talking about hope that you'll be waiting for that moment so now I would like to call for brother Muhammad Sobah general secretary of Jamiatul Salaf to deliver a speech about this event people may be wondering why what's the reason why it's taking why the event is taking place why it's taking place in english why not in dewey our native language there should be something behind there listen to the speech General Secretary Mohammad Sobah brothers of so please come here Innal hamdalillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله 
صلى الله على آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد I welcome you all with the greetings of the people of paradise السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Today we gathered here to witness this event similar to which no other event had ever been recorded in the history of Maldives. Surely, this is not from us or not from ourselves. Indeed, this is a great blessing and mercy from Allah to the people of Maldives. Alhamdulillah, all praise be to Allah who made this event a reality. It is with His it is with His blessing and mercy that we are gathered here in this noble gathering. First of all, I would like to thank Dr. Bilal Phillips for accepting our invitation to share some of his experience and knowledge with us here in this evening. Jazakallah khairan shaykh. Today, we mark the beginning of our long effort to bring internationally recognized speakers to our reach, to bring English-speaking scholars to address issues and challenges we face today, to offer brothers and sisters solutions, true solutions for their problems. We, Jamiatul Salaf, strive to deliver the true message of Islam to our brothers and sisters. This event is one such event constructed in a different form. At a time when Islam is tainted with false allegation and negative propaganda, we believe our obligation is heavier than, heavier than ever before. We condemn all forms of violence and corruption. We condemn injustice and oppression. We call for peace and justice. We believe Islam is the only solution for the entire humanity. We understand the responsibility that we have taken for ourselves. That is the responsibility to deliver the true understanding and teaching of Islam to our beloved brothers and sisters of Maldives. We also understand that we have an obligation towards the society, that is, to deliver this message in such a way it's clean, clear, and attractive. Clean from corruption, clear from misguidance, attractive with beautiful manners. O oh Allah, make our hearts sincere towards you and give us strength and give us wisdom. إِيَّاكَ نَعْبُدُ وَإِيَّاكَ نَسْتَعِينَ فَالسَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ Alhamdulillah. I think the young children or the young people in a society can be no more stable than the foundation or individual family units upon which it rests. There's no doubt about that. Our government, our institutions, our schools, indeed our way of life are dependent on healthy marriages and loyalty to the vulnerable little children around our feet. 
Surely, children expect something. What is it? Do we really have an explicit idea what the children does actually expect from us, from the elderly people? The children, we all, they need care from the elderly people. They need the guidance from the schools. They need the guidance from the institution, different institutions. They need guidance from their parents. And one main important thing you have to consider is that they need the right guidance. That's for sure. Unless they need, unless they got the right guidance, it's really difficult to follow the right path, surely. So please listen to a, I would like to say a short speech by a youngster. The speech is named as Our Call. It's by Ibn Simao, so I would like um, to Ibn Simao to come on stage. Ibn Simao. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wassalat wassalamu ala rasulillah. Our people, lend me an attentive ear for what I am going to speak tonight. It's what concerns each child born today. Each youngster who is looking upon his future. Each parent who is worried about their children. And each leader who is responsible for the people under him. Our parents know that you have to stand before Allah one day. We follow your footsteps and guidance. Unless you obey Allah, we won't know whom to obey. Unless you love and follow the Prophet, we won't know whom to love and follow. Unless you give us proper guidance, we'll be left alone. Oh moms and dads, give us love and caring and guide us according to the truth. That is the book of Allah and the ways of the messenger. Oh my dear brothers and sisters, don't be deceived by those who call for evil. They will destroy your life. Take as friends who fear Allah and take not as friends those who spread mischief. Oh, our beloved teachers, we spend most of our life with you. Be a good example for us. We love you deep within our hearts. Teach us. Our leaders of our nation, as the Prophet said, every shepherd is responsible for his flock. So know that you have to stand before Allah and you will be questioned about your flock. So spread justice and suppress corruption. 
The Quran is the solution for all our problems today and until the last day. So implement his commandment and avoid what he has forbidden. All leaders, create a better environment for us. An environment where we can learn and experience good things in life. A safer environment where we can play and enjoy. Where we can find people whom we love, who loves us and protects us from those who intend to harm us. Oh nation, wake up! Let's soar tight to the rope of Allah so that we will not be deviated. We believe in Allah and His Messenger. And we believe that the solution for everything is in the book of Allah and the authentic hadith. Oh Allah, be a witness that I have conveyed this message in this noble gathering. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Speaking just as an ordinary person, ordinary citizen of this country, I believe Ibn Simam has just said what a typical youngster would expect from elderly people, whether it's from the government or schools, whether it's from the parents. So let's uh, go back to the very important subject now. What is Islam and modernism? Some people say that Islam is a very old religion. That's something we often hear these days. Islam, people say, some people say Islam is not a religion for this day and age. What do you think? Can Islam and modernism affect us? Does it really affect us? How does it affect us? How can we deal with modernism as Muslims? Before I call Dr. Bilal Phillips to do his talk on Islam and modernism, I would like to give a brief introduction about Dr. Bilal Phillips. Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips is a Jamaican-Canadian Islamic scholar who converted to Islam in the early 70s after journeying from Christianity to communism. Shortly after his reversion to Islam, he embarked on another journey to the other side of the world seeking Islamic knowledge, which took him to Saudi Arabia, which he completed a BA in Medina, and M.A. in Riyadh, then to the University of Wales, UK, where he's completed a PhD in Islamic theology in the early 90s. After graduation, Dr. Bilal Phillips became a teacher of Islamic studies for 10 years in an Islamic high school, Manarat, Riyadh, and a lecturer of Arabic and Islamic studies in the American University in Dubai, UAE, for another 10 years' time. 
during this 10 years in the UAE, he also founded the Islamic Information Center in Dubai. And during his subsequent six years in Qatar, he was the Islamic consultant for the Islamic Information Wing of EED, charity in Doha, and founder of the Islamic Studies Academy. Brothers and sisters, Dr. Bilal Phillips has written and translated and commented on over 50 published books on various Islamic topics. He has also edited and published the 56th book, Iman, reading series for children and presented Islamic programs for a number of years on Riyadh Channel 2 TV, Sharaja TV for 10 years, as well as Peace TV. Peace TV is quite uh, known for the Maldivian people. We often see, I believe, uh, Peace TV, um, many people are quite interested in Peace TV. They often watch. Uh, and also Huda TV, Islamic Channel, UK, and the Dean Show, Chicago, USA. In 2000, Dr. Bilas founded Islamic Online University, offering free courses to over 8,000 registered students from over 120 different countries worldwide. He is also the founder and former head of the Islamic Studies Department of Preston University, that was uh, on 2002, Ajman, UAE, the founder and head of the Islamic Studies Academy in 2007, Doha, Qatar, the current founder and head of the English medium Islamic Studies Department of Knowledge, International University, Riyadh, and head of the College of Dawah Islamic Sculpture, English section 2009, Omar Islamic University, Sudan. Most recently, Dr. Bilal is the director of PREF, uh, Professional Education and Research Foundation, and supervising director of Preston International College and Al Fajr International School in Chennai, India. So I believe um, that's a very uh, brief introduction about Dr. Bilal Phillips. So Dr. Bilal Phillips, after a very short moment, would be uh, giving a speech about Islam and modernism. Can, is Islam a religion that's for just 1,400 years ago? Can we believe in that? Or is just that's a, a complete false lie who are, that, that, that people against Islam are spreading? And many answers to this topic, Islam and modernism. And very important subject, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, after the speech or talk by Dr. Bilal Phillips, there will be a question and answer session. So please feel free to ask any questions whatsoever relating to that topic. We believe um, Maldivian people uh, will be taking the advantage, I, I would like to say that, uh, would be taking advantage of these kinds of meetings and gatherings. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put peace and mercy and blessings upon all of us. Dr. Bilal Phillips, please uh, come over to the, uh, near the podium to give the talk on Islam and modernism.
Dr. Bilal Phillips. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last messenger of Allah. <clears throat> Islam and modernism is a topic which I hear repeated in many parts of the world today. It is a topic which the Western media has promoted or raised issues about questioning, in fact, is Islam outdated? This is what is at the root of the issues of Islam and modernism. Before going in to look at the essence of this issue, it is important for us to understand what actually is the meaning of modernism. Since we hear this term used so often, modernism, as defined in Wikipedia, is a trend of thought that affirms the power of human beings to create, improve, and reshape their environment with the aid of scientific knowledge, technology, and practical experimentation, and is, according to them, in its essence, both progressive and optimistic. It is the power of human beings to create, improve, and reshape their environment. How? With the aid of scientific knowledge, technology, and practical experimentation. In other words, there is no place for religious knowledge. Religious knowledge has no place in that formula. Therefore, whoever tries to promote anything on the basis of religious knowledge would then be backwards, uh, unprogressive, and pessimistic. The complete opposite of what modernism claims for itself. Why did they go there? Why did they take this position? Well, when they look at their own systems, when the West looks at the best of its systems. The American Constitution, for example, which was written back in the 18th century by the best minds, most enlightened minds of that age, where they tried to establish principles of justice, brotherhood, equality, etc. In the middle of that constitution, Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3, is the statement 
that black people, non-white people, would be considered equivalent to three-fifths of a white man. This is the, the Constitution of the United States of America. The three-fifths compromise. So, of course, with the civil rights movement and, and uh, other changes which took place, this article was amended. So I'm not saying that it's in force today, but they saw a need to amend that constitution because it contained in it injustice, racism was found, was an integral part of that early constitution. So in that constitution, when the three-fifth compromise was added, that was 222 years ago. So if there was a need to make such radical changes after 200 years, surely a constitution or a system which was brought about by, in their view, human beings 1,400 years ago, that must need even more change. It can't possibly stand as it is. So when they look at the Magna Carta, this is the expression of democracy and justice, etc., in the UK, or the French Revolution, the documents that they wrote, or, or other changes which took place, they look back and say, all of these efforts of human beings had to be changed. Therefore, Islam, in their view, no different because they look at it as not a revealed religion, not something revealed by God, but something that Muhammad wasallam made up in the 6th century. So, that is what is at the root of this call for modernism. In other words, systems should change with the times. Systems should change with the times. Otherwise, they become outmoded. So in the same way, for us to use transportation methods which were used a hundred years ago in the Maldives, for example. How people got around a hundred years ago. If we were to use those methods today, it would not be effective. It would be backwards. We would lose a lot of time, we would lose a lot of energy. So, modern means of transportation, that's the only way to go. That is progressive. However, all of this is based, as I said, on the belief that Islam is a human product. So what has happened today is that we have modern trends. Three major trends. The first is that Islam is irrelevant amongst Muslims. 
those who have accepted that Islam, in fact, is irrelevant. Just as among Christians, among Jews and others, there arose among them those who rejected religion in its entirety. Human rights are not preserved. Oppression of women is widespread. Therefore, Islam is irrelevant today. Among Muslim leaders, we had Ataturk. Ataturk, who began after World War I, began the secularist movement on a wide-scale level in Turkey. Ataturk tried his best to eradicate Islam as we know it. He instructed that the Adhan should be made in Turkish. That in the mosques, chairs like what is found in the churches should be introduced. The prayers should be done in Turkish. It was illegal for any man to wear a turban on his head. He had to wear a bowler cap like what was worn in Europe at that time. So he tried his utmost. However, the will of the people overcame his efforts. He He didn't succeed. The second major trend is the belief that parts of Islam are relevant, but parts are not. Culture, cultural ties, family, festivals, the Eids, etc. These are okay things. They they bind people together. It's a societal interaction. They're good. But... There are other parts of Islam which have to do with governance, uh, legal systems, etc., which are not relevant. The third trend is the trend that all of Islam is relevant. All of Islam is relevant. That trend is labeled as fundamentalist. Those who say that all of Islam is relevant, then they are considered to be the fundamentalists. And fundamentalism is equivalent to terrorism. Fundamentalists are terrorists. Either they openly espouse terrorism or they quietly hold it in their hearts. In fact, after 9-11 in the U.S., The New York Times had a list of points by which one could identify a fundamentalist, a terrorist, a secret terrorist. Obviously, if he's blowing up the World Trade Center, you know he's definitely a terrorist. But if he's just walking around amongst you, he's a Muslim, how to distinguish between him and the moderate Muslims, right? They said they listed. Number one on the list is he prays five times a day. This is one of the signs to know 
a fundamentalist. He prays five times a day. Number two, he fasts in the month of Ramadan, the whole month. Number three, he doesn't shake the hands of women. He won't shake. If a woman puts her hand out, he won't shake it. And the list went on to describe, in fact, a practicing Muslim. A practicing Muslim. He became the fundamentalist. The non-practicing Muslim, what we call the Friday Muslim, he only shows up in the masjid on Fridays, or the Ramadan Muslim, we'll see a lot of them when Ramadan comes along. These are the moderates. But those who seek to practice Islam on a daily basis, regularly, they are the fundamentalists. So, this view, a view which is shared not only by the Western uh, analysts, but also by Muslims who, not knowing Islam properly, were defeated by Western thought, the globalized Western philosophy. So, what we find today, we have heard, we have seen a variety of attempts to reinterpret Islam. To reinterpret Islam. So we hear, for example, on some occasions, those who say that we need a feminine tafsir of the Qur'an. A feminine tafsir of the Qur'an. Why? Because all of the great scholars of tafsir, the mufassirun, they were all men. So when they interpreted the Qur'an, they interpreted it according to male preferences. So we need some females to interpret the Qur'an for us. Also, we had the, the call for female imams. Why shouldn't there be female imams? Why should it always be male imams? This follows the general trend which took place in Christianity where priests who weren't allowed to marry at first were then allowed to marry when the Protestant movement arose in the 15th century. Priests could then marry. This was a change. Modernism. Then, in the 20th century, we had female priests. With the rise of feminism, we had female priests. So now we have female priests. And eventually, we even have homosexual priests. This is the latest trend. We now have homosexual priests who perform homosexual marriages. Men can marry men, women can marry women, and be good Christians, no problem. These are obvious corruptions. Sometimes the modernist movement 
is for the better. In the case of Hinduism, for example, where the religion required that a woman whose husband dies and he is burnt, his body is burnt to release his soul. They said that the woman who has no soul should climb on the funeral pyre and be burnt up along with her husband. This was called sati. Well, when the British colonized India, they said, stop this. It's not good. So, Indians accepted and stopped it. So that was a, an improvement. Later on, the Hindus themselves decided to abolish the caste system, which is a good thing. They did it amongst themselves. However, some of the modernist trends, like what happened to Christianity, are evil. For example, starting west, the practice of decriminalizing adultery and fornication, this is an evil turn. This is a new approach. It is modernist and it is evil because it creates uh, forces which would destroy the families, break up homes and cause the root of the society to crumble. And once you decriminalize adultery and fornication, and how did they do it? They did it following the same principle that we mentioned earlier, using their scientific knowledge and technology and their practical experimentation, they concluded, since we have now removed religion from the picture, how do we define what is wrong in terms of male-female relationships? They came up with two principles. We can't say it is forbidden in the Bible, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, that's out the door. It's not relevant. So they had to come up with some universal principles, according to them. So these were two. It is expressed in the phrase, consenting adults. They said, whatever takes place between consenting adults should not be interfered with by government. Consent is there, meaning nobody is being forced. They are adults, meaning adults are not abusing children. Two adults, with consent, it is their business what takes place amongst them. Government has no right. So on the basis of this, they decriminalized adultery and fornication, and they decriminalized homosexuality because it's consenting adults. Furthermore, in Sweden and much of Europe, incest was decriminalized. In Sweden, it is perfectly legitimate and okay for a man to have sexual relations with his mother, his sister, or his daughter. And that is modernism for you. That's where it takes 
That's where it's taking society. Is that an improvement? Of course not. That is a great evil. Destructive to the fabric of the society. We have amongst us some who in the name of Islam have tried to promote some of these modernist values. Among them are the Qadianis or the Ahmadis. Gulam, Mirza Gulam, who claimed that he was a prophet of Allah in India, Pakistan. He cancelled jihad at a time when the nation was struggling against British colonialism. So he was an ally to the colonial powers and he was given knighthood and given uh, status in the British Empire. We also have, in even more recent times, another false prophet who claimed prophethood in America, Rashad Khalifa. Rashad Khalifa, who claimed that he discovered the mathematical miracle of the Qur'an, the number 19. And this was his miracle. He instituted the practice of female imams. So his wife used to lead salah in his temple. He called it a masjid. I don't want to call it that. We can only call it a temple. In his temple in Tucson, Arizona, his wife used to lead salah. When he was out of town, his wife used to lead the salah. And males and females would stand side by side in prayer. Not women in the back because... That is backwards. We need to be more progressive. So women will stand side by side with the men. And hijab, forget it, not needed. That was ancient. We are in modern times. It's enough for a woman to wear what is considered moderate. Of course, moderate and modest in American context is a miniskirt. So, he promoted prophethood for himself and actually ended up attacking the, both the Qur'an and the Sunnah. After denying the Sunnah altogether, he then attacked the Qur'an claiming that there are some verses in the Qur'an which are false. And in order to even support his claims of his 19 miracle, he went to the text of the Qur'an and changed it. And this you can see in their uh, translation of the Qur'an. The translation by Rashad Khalifa. If you go to Surah Al-Qalam, at the beginning of Surah Al-Qalam, you find the letter Noon. Wal-Qalami wa ma yasturun. Okay, it begins with the letter Noon. However, because his claim that all of these letters were multiples of 19 in their chapters. When he added up all of the noons in Surah Qalam, he found that there were one short. So his 19 miracle 
wasn't working. So in order to make it work, he went to the text of the Qur'an and he rewrote Noon in the name of the letter. Noon, Wow, Noon. So, of course, Noon, Wow, Noon is read as Noon. But that's not what the text of the Qur'an had. It had just the letter Noon. And he claimed that this was the way it was in the ancient manuscripts and that the Muslim world, they changed it to just noon. So he was taking it back to what it was. Of course, this is a big lie. You cannot find any manuscript in which noon is written out as noon, wow, noon. This was a change he made in the text of the Quran which proves clearly that he is a false prophet. And one of his claims was that he would die a natural death. He had received certain death threats and he said, the proof that I am a prophet of Allah is that I would die a natural death. No one would be able to kill me. Shortly thereafter, he was assassinated, stabbed to death in his temple, 1991, and that was the end of Rashad Khalifa. However, some of his followers, some of them left realizing that in fact he was a false prophet. Others continued, set up a website on the internet which they called Submitters International. So that is the new name that the Rashadites go under today. And they continued to promote their false teachings of the false prophet under the heading of Submitters International. Submitters meaning from submission, Islam, submission, etc. And we should be clear that those who claim themselves to be a part of this organization, this movement, Submitters International, they are not Muslims. As the Qadianis are not Muslims because they believe in a false prophet, another prophet after Muhammad wasallam. The submitters international are not Muslims. They believe in a false prophet, whatever they want to call him. They believe and have accepted the changes in the Quran, etc. So, don't be fooled by any of their claims. We also have another trend, which is the trend of the Quraniyun. The Qur'anis who claim that we will only follow the Qur'an. We will only follow the Qur'an. And Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 1,400 years ago warned about such people. Saying that a time would come when a man would lean on his couch and hold up the Qur'an and say, Whatever I find in the Qur'an, halal I make halal. Whatever I find in it, haram, I make haram. Nothing else beyond that. He said, but I, the Messenger of Allah, have made certain things halal and certain things haram. So, those people following this Quranic, uh, Quraniyun tendency or trend, who claim that the Sunnah is false, we cannot rely on it, based on Orientalist or Western research or 
those among them who reject certain aspects of the sunnah, saying that it doesn't make sense. This couldn't possibly have been from the Prophet ﷺ. Both of these trends are dangerous trends. One has gone into disbelief, that is those who deny the sunnah altogether. And the other one is bordering on disbelief by denying parts of the sunnah which they don't like and affirming parts of the sunnah which they like. The example that they commonly give in defense of this practice is the hadith of the fly. What is the hadith of the fly? The hadith of the fly is a hadith in Sahih Muslim, Sahih Bukhari, our most authentic text of the sunnah, in which the Prophet ﷺ said, if a fly falls in your drink, dunk him in and throw him out and take your drink. Because under one wing of the fly is disease and under the other wing is cure. Disease and cure. So the modernist says, we are doctors or we know doctors and all the doctors say that the fly only brings disease. That's all we know from the fly, is disease. So this business about under one wing is disease and under one wing is cure, this is nonsense. The Prophet could not possibly have said it. This is the logic that they bring. They want to reject this hadith because it goes against their logic. Not stopping to think that, imagine, 1,400 years ago, the Prophet ﷺ identified the fly as a source of disease. Only recently did Western science come to that conclusion that, a, that the fly carries disease. But the Prophet ﷺ identified that 1,400 years ago. That part just Missed them altogether. The second part, that in the fly there is a cure. This is not something unusual. Think about the snake. The poisonous snake. He carries with him poison that can kill you. And guess what? He also carries the cure for the poison. If he didn't have the cure for the poison, the first time he bit anything, he would kill himself. He has the cure for the poison. So the antidote for snake poison is taken from the snake itself. The snake has both the, the, the disease and the cure. And there are many other examples of that in nature. In the plants as well as the animal kingdom. So, what is the problem? Since you can't find a cure in the fly, does that mean there is no cure? No. It just means you don't know of any cure. That's all you can say. I don't know of any cure. You can't say there is no cure. Because we have too many examples. The same one I just mentioned about 
poison, snake poison, a hundred years ago, if you told somebody that in snake poison is a cure for heart disease, they would look at you and say, are you mad? Because they know the snake bite stops the heart and you die from it. So how in the world could a snake bite or snake poison be a cure for heart disease? It stops the heart and kills the person. So today we have farms, snake farms, where cobras and others are milked for their poison. And from it is extracted uh, certain chemicals which are used for heart patients today. A hundred years ago, no one would believe it. Today, we're using it. So, these kinds of approaches where we would reject the Quran or the Sunnah because we haven't found what is stated in there in real life, this is a false approach. The Quran consistently calls to what modern science has affirmed. The areas where the Quran addresses issues which modern science has not discovered, all we can say is it hasn't discovered it. We can't say it's not true. The Quran is consistently in agreement with what we know as modern science today. Similarly, in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, there is much. For example, Prophet Muhammad ﷺ told his followers 1,400 years ago, do not sleep on your stomachs. Don't go to sleep on your stomachs. He instructed them not to sleep on their stomachs. At that time, his followers just accepted it. Don't sleep on your stomach. So they slept on the side as he did. And Muslims have done it throughout the centuries who followed the sunnah. Recently, relatively recently for me, when I was traveling, I came across a magazine, Newsweek magazine, in which it was discussing the various medical operations which were done on the spine for people who have various ailments of the spine, crushed discs, slipped discs, variety of other things. So they discussed the various new developments in spinal surgery. At the end of the article, there's about four pages in the Newsweek, at the end of it, it had a list of doctor's recommendations. You know what was number one on that list? Don't sleep on your stomach. That was number one. Don't sleep on your stomach. And they explained why. Because of the fact that the back heavy bony structure doesn't have any support. What's in front of it when you lie on your stomach is all soft organs. So it sags downwards. And that's what causes people to have curvature of the spine in late age. When they get older, you see them walking with their backs humped. It is from this. Prophet Muhammad spoke about that 1,400 years ago. Furthermore, I noted 
that in 1989, British medical researchers looking into causes of cot death or sudden death syndrome, SDS, where children are put to sleep at the age of one and two or less than one and they never wake up. They just die in their beds for no apparent reason. This was happening around the world. And they wanted to try to find out what was the cause, what was behind it. So they sent out researchers across the UK, meeting with families who had children that died in this way, asking them a variety of questions to understand what was the circumstance in their home which could possibly have led to it. And after they finished all of the questions about the type of mattress, uh, the type of uh, bed that they put the child in, the type of foods that they fed them, all kinds of information they asked them. In the end, this was all put into computer, correlated, and guess what came out as number one? Children put to sleep on their stomachs. So, as a result of that, front page news, UK doctors warning, do not put your children to sleep on their stomachs. It was the common cause in those who had children that died in this way. And nine years later, in 1998, when they did a further survey, they found that over 70% caught death, caught death had dropped by over 70%. This information, of course, went worldwide. And the common practice of putting children to sleep on their stomachs, putting them to rest on their stomachs because they had colic, etc. Nurses are doing that normally. This had to be revised. But Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu warned about it 1,400 years ago. So, coming back to Islam. Is Islam outmoded, outdated? Can it not adapt to the times? One who doesn't understand Islam would say such a thing. That statement is a clear indication of one's ignorance of Islam and how Islamic law functions. Because we have in Islam two sources of law. One source we call the Sharia. And the other source we call fiqh. Normally these are both translated as Islamic law. So people don't understand that there in fact is a difference between the two. Fiqh and sharia are related, but they are not one and the same. Sharia is revelation from Allah. The laws which were revealed directly from God. Those laws came either in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah. In the Sunnah, in the Hadith, in the statements, the actions, the approvals of Prophet Muhammad These were the two sources of revelation. 
That is the Sharia. And that revelation will never change. The laws which come from there will never change. They're fixed. However, at the same time, there is fiqh. When we try to apply those laws today, tomorrow, yesterday, we apply them based on the knowledge that we have of our given circumstances. We use our reasoning and we deduce from the sharia principles which we then apply in our given time, place. However, our information may change. So, if the information changes, then the laws we have deduced by fiqh, by understanding, these have to change. They don't remain the same as the laws of the sharia, the revealed laws. This is the point. Where Islam has a fixed foundation and it has a flexible superstructure which can mold with the times and according to the information and the and the uh, need of the people in given places at given circumstances. For example, to illustrate this change, smoking tobacco, when it first reached the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, Muslim scholars had to analyze it and put a ruling on it. Because according to Islamic law, there is a ruling for everything. Either that thing is wajib or fard, you must do it. Or it is mustahab, also called sunnah, meaning it's recommended for you to do it. Or it is mubah, neutral. Do it, don't do it, no problem. Or it is makru, something disliked. It's better you didn't do it. Or it is haram, forbidden. Everything, every thought, every action will fall into one of these five categories. So, the scholars in the Ottoman Empire, when they looked at tobacco and its effects, and know that the it was the Ottomans who devised the cigarette rolled in paper. When they analyzed the effects, they concluded that it was makru, disliked. Better you didn't do it, but if you did it, there was no sin. Why did they come to it as being makru? Why didn't they just say it was mubah? No problem, do it or not do it. Well, when they look back in the sharia, to find out what is the ruling on substances which cause bad breath. Because this was the noted results of smoking that they could see. You smoke cigarettes, you develop the smoker's breath. Right? Which is not a pleasant breath. So the West has developed all kinds of sprays. People spray in their mouths to kind of cloud and hide this smoker's breath. So, 
they looked into the Sharia to see what was the ruling concerning substances which cause bad breath. And they found there a statement from Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in which he said, any one of you who eats raw garlic or raw onions should not come to our mosques. Why? Because at the end of the prayer, we turn to each other saying, Salaam alaykum wa rahmatullah. And of course, a person who has eaten garlic or onions, it will be very offensive, painful, harmful. So, they are told, stay home. So since staying home means they will be deprived of the, origin, of the additional blessings that one gets from praying in the mosque, in jama'ah, in the, with the congregation, then they said this is makru. However, in 1979, when the Surgeon General of the United States of America announced to America and the world that it had been conclusively shown, proven, that smoking causes cancer. And cancer, of course, we know, cause death. Cancer causes death. So, at this point, when that announcement was made, then Muslim scholars who were not fanatical, but who understood the fiqh, they went back and extracted from the sharia, a new ruling, the ruling on substances which cause death. And the ruling is haram. As Allah said, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَنفُسَكُمْ Do not kill yourselves. And the Prophet ﷺ had said, whoever kills himself will find himself repeating that act eternally in hell. So, smoking, the ruling now shifted from makru, disliked, to haram. That is the true ruling concerning smoking. Of course, you still have some people who say, no, no, it's makru. Why? He's smoking. He's going to defend it as makru. He wants to justify his act. But reality is, it is haram. So, what we see here is that Islam is good, effective, progressive, and useful to all peoples, in all places, at all times. That is the, the, the bottom line. There is nothing backwards about Islam. Sure, some people might say, you cut off people's hands if they steal. In fact, there's a website on the internet dedicated to the hand in which they show the hand and how it works, how the sinews and the muscles and the bones all work together to a miraculous thing. And at the end of the presentation on the website it says, and Muslims hack it off. You know, 
they would destroy this miracle from God. Well, yes, Islamic law says that the person who steals under certain conditions and their rules and regulations governing it, who is, well basically these rules and regulations confirm that this person is a thief by profession. Not accidentally, not uh, out of a need because he's starving or something like this. No, this is a professional thief. Once that is established, then his hand will go if he's caught. Yes, that is harm. What about his human rights? Isn't he have a right to keep his hand? Well, we say, what about the human rights of the society as a whole? If by removing his hand, we will stop him from harming the society as a whole, then we say, the human rights of the society takes precedence over his human rights. And if in removing his hand, that is a message sent to the society as a whole, beware. If you're caught, that is the consequence. And as a result, you have a society which is secure, where people can go to sleep at night without locking up, latching doors and windows and bars and all these different things. Then we say it is worth it. It is worth depriving him of his human right to keep his hand in order to provide security for the society as a whole. So, each and every one of the laws of Islam can be easily defended in this manner. They have practical benefit. When applied, we know the consequence in the countries that apply it. To the degree that they apply it, we see the benefits. To the degree that they don't apply it, we see the harm. So, in concluding, Islam is not opposed to modernism in the sense of technological development. We put fans in our mosques. We put air conditioners in our mosques. We put rugs in our mosques. We don't have a problem with that. We can sleep on beds. We can drive cars. These are all technological developments, modern technology. We don't shun it. You have certain groups like the Amish and others in, in, in America, that shun all of this. When they left Europe persecuted by the other Christians and they fled to America, they came there and they drove around like everybody else in buggies with horse and buggy. Later on when cars came, they didn't go with the cars. They stayed with horse and buggy. So till today you can go to their societies, their communities and see them driving around in horse and buggies. They don't use electricity. They use only candles and oil, etc. That's not us. We can benefit from modernism in technology. But in terms of the essential way of life which guides society then Islam covers the needs of human society till the last day, will cover till the last day 
of this world. That is the reality. That is what we're living. And it is for us as Muslims to come back to that truth and to apply Islam in our lives. The more we apply it, the more success we'll get. The less we apply it, the greater the failure we will fall into. With that, I conclude my presentation. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shari kalakalabbaik <laughs>